From JD at IWillMakeYouHardToKill.com. My captor handcuffs me behind my back before throwing a hood over my head and leading me outside. He sits me down on the bumper of a car and duct tapes my legs together from the ankles to the knees. After that, I'm pushed back into the trunk and it closes on top of me. I immediately shake the hood off and feel the car lurch forward at breakneck speed as I go to work on the handcuffs with the bobby pin that I had stashed in my waistband. The car swerves and jerks from side to side, doing its best to make my escape impossible. During one of the violent turns, the car screeches stop, and as I'm slammed into the back seats, the duct tape splits most of the way, and I am able to free my legs and sprawl them enough to stabilize myself as the car soars forward again. I work my bobby pin into the cuffs and focus on not dropping it while I tumble around in the trunk like a rag doll in an oversized dryer. The left cuff pops open, and I grab the trunk escape latch as I prepare to make my jump. When the trunk pops open, the car skids to a halt, and the stopwatch records my time. The instructors verify that my restraints have been defeated, and they give me the thumbs-up signaling that I passed the evaluation. I've been put through many tests during my time in the military, carrying ridiculously heavy packs through the steepest terrains and the most extreme climates. There's been confined spaces, impossible time standards, sleep deprivation, brutally cold water, and even physical interrogations. I have been ordered to locations that I've never volunteered for, and I've performed tasks that no one should ever have to experience. I've even cleaned out the gray water tank on a ship. The challenges have come in many forms, but the toughest trials were always the ones that tested my faith. I think these are the hardest, at least for me, because I'm forced out of the driver's seat. I like being in control, or at least the appearance of it. And a faith test stretches us in a very different way. We're all tested in our faith, but it rarely comes at a time or the way in which we'd expect. And more than that, we're all addicted to the comfort these days, and anything that requires more than a push of a button seems inconvenient. We look for a way around the obstacle, or at least try to find the easiest way. But there's a better way to approach this. The Stoics say, the obstacle is the way. And I've found this to be extremely valuable in my life, especially when it deals with faith. There are massive opportunities in life disguised as hurdles. You might not be thrilled the next time trouble shows up and your faith is flexed, but my appeal is that you position yourself to see the chance for growth and the lessons of these moments. These are the times that reveal our grit, forge our strengths, and expose our weaknesses, reminding us how big our God really is. We learned so much more when our blind spots are revealed. This is a good thing. It's not like in jiu-jitsu when you roll with an opponent who regularly kicks your butt, but you learn so much more and get much better and faster when you're not the one dominating. Now, I'm not trivializing this, trivializing this. Some tests are more than their fair, of, fair share of gnarly. We're scared 
and it's not abnormal to be afraid. Just don't be ruled by it. Be fueled by it. It's not what you do with that fear that activates your faith. Fear can cripple you or catalyze you. That's the decision you control. Everything else is like the circumstances of the trial will likely be outside your control. So don't spend any extra energy getting upset about what you cannot influence. Training is a big part of how we perform the tests we face. I spent five days with bruised and bloody wrists, learning the ins and outs of restraints before they threw me in that trunk. Our faith is no different. It needs consistent fuel to perform when things are unstable. Max Lakato says, quote, feed your fears and your faith will starve. Feed your faith and your fears will, unquote. If we dial in our perspective, we see that tests are simply an evaluation of our training. God watches how we respond and we benefit by learning from these challenges and our faith grows. This fire forges us, shapes us into a better version of ourselves. The Bible makes it clear that this is how God does his business. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests our hearts. Proverbs 17.3 Every test is another notch in our belt that we can look back on and strengthen our resolve in the next battle. Faith tested is strengthened. Without these confrontations, we are simply spectators in life. Just passengers with no skin in the game or wimpy faith. The next time tests come, don't try to avoid them. Put yourself out there. Meet it head on and let God go to work for you. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials and various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2 through 4. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Around the Campfire with Kate, where surviving, thriving, and staying alive is the goal. Tonight is a tribute to Paul Harvey and what he had to say in 1965 about today's events. This is a live call-in show, so if you want to call in and make a statement or just give your opinion, you can call by going to psn-tv.com and click on the Skype icon. That's psn-tv.com. Paul Harvey's If I Were the Devil from 1965, copied from Fresh Manna Today. In 1965, Paul Harvey broadcasted If I Were the Devil. It's really amazing to realize over 47 years ago how accurately he prophesied the future spiritual condition of the United States. Many of his statements were considered ridiculously outlandish at the time in history. Yet, here we are. And we find ourselves today. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population. But I wouldn't be happy until I seized the ripest apple on the tree. The so I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, 
I would whisper to you and as I would whisper to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach them to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors and how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families that war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was consumed. And with promise of higher ratings, I'd have memorizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it. You'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon, I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who want until I had killed the incentives of the ambitious. And what do you bet I could get whole states to promote gambling as a way to get rich? I would caution against extremes and hard work and patriotism and moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on the TV is the best way to be. And thus, I could undress you in public, and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey, good day. Paul Harvey's We the People. Americans, the how and the why of our beloved republic. And so much better known and understood than the who. The United States of America was born in 1776. But it was conceived 165 years before that. The earliest settlers had watered the new world with much sweat. 
they had built substantial holdings for themselves, for their families. And when the time came to separate themselves from a tyranny, an ocean away at best, it meant starting all over again after the ravages of war. Researching what you are about to hear gave a whole new dimension to my reverence for our nation's first citizens. All others of the world's revolutions before and since were initiated by men who had nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Our founders had everything to lose and nothing to gain. One thing, our lives, our fortune, our sacred honor. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey. You remember the cherry tree fiction? A long time after you had forgotten the more earth-shaking history, making episodes of the like of George Washington, who have misplaced in your memory that in the tales of Benjamin Franklin's statesmanship, that all you remember is his flying a kite. And Joyce Kilmer was a great military hero. But the only thing that you personally remember about him is his poetic tribute to trees. Maybe of this current decade that which will be remembered best will not be its wars and its own rockets or its crumbling frontiers or the giants who lived and died. Maybe all will survive to linger in the day-by-day vocabulary of generations of yet unborn. Maybe the songs of a Memphis minstrel are the reincarnation of electric automobiles. But for any on the eve of the 4th of July, I, Paul Harvey, do bequeath unto you something to remember. You may not be able to quote one line from the Declaration of Independence at this moment. Henceforth, you'll always be able to quote it at least one line. It's in the last paragraph where you will recall when I remind you. It says, We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. In the Pennsylvania State House, that's now called Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the best men from each of the colonies sat down together. This was a very fortunate hours in our nation's history. One of those rare occasions in the lives of when we had greatness to spare. These were men's, men of means, well-educated. Twenty-four were lawyers and jurists. Nine were farmers and owners of large plantations. On June 11th, a committee sat down to draw up a Declaration of Independence where we were going to tell the British fatherland no more rule by redcoats. Below the dam of ruthless foreign rule where a stream of freedom was running shallow and muddy. 
and we were going to light a fuse to dynamite that dam. This pact, as Burke later put it, was a partnership between the living and the dead and the yet unborn. There was no bigotry. There was no demography. All had shared hardships. Jefferson had finished a draft of the document in 17 days. Congress adopted it in July, and so much is familiar history. But now, George III had denounced all rebels in America as traitors. Punishment for treason was hanging. The names, now so familiar to you from the several signatures on that Declaration of Independence, the names were kept secret for six months, for each knew the meaning of the magnificent last paragraph in which his signature pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. Fifty-six men placed their names beneath that pledge. Fifty-six men knew when they signed that they were risking everything. They knew that if they won this fight, the best they could expect would be years of hardship and struggling in a new nation. And if they lost, they'd face a hangman's rope. But they signed the pledge. And you can look it up. And you can see the document. And the signature of the fate of that gallant 56. Carter Braxton of Virginia, wealthy planter a trader, T-R-A-D-E-R, trader, saw his ships swept from the sea to pay his debts. He lost his home and all of his properties, and he died in rags. Thomas Lynch, Jr., who signed that pledge, was a third-generation rice grower, aristocrat, large plantation owner. After he signed, his health failed. His wife and he set out for France to regain his failing health. Their ship never made it to France, and he was never heard from again. Thomas M. Keene of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress without pay, his family in poverty and in hiding. Vandals looted the properties of Ellery and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward, and Rutledge, and Middleton. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, raised $2 million on his own signature to provision our allies, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiped out his entire estate, and he was never reimbursed by his government. In the final battle for Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his 
Nelson's home, which was occupied by Cornwallis. It was destroyed. Thomas Nelson Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed. His wife in prison, and she died within a few months. Richard Stockton, who signed that declaration, was captured and mistreated, his health broken to the extent that he died at the age of 51. His estate was pillaged. Thomas Hayward, Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives. His fields in gristmill were laid waste for more than a year. He lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead and his children gone. His property's gone, and he died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed and his family scattered. Philip Livingston died within a few months from the hardships of the war. John Hancock, history remembers best due to a quirk of fate rather than anything he stood for. That great sweeping signature attesting to his vanity towers over all the others. One of the wealthiest men in New England. And yet he stood outside Boston one terrible night of, of the war and he said, Burn Boston, and though it makes John Hancock a beggar, if the require if the public good requires it. So he too lived up to the pledge. Of the 56, few were long to survive. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston, attacked, looted, occupied by the enemy, or burned. Two lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its more merciful bullets. I don't know what impression you had had of these men who met that summer in Philadelphia, but I think it's important that we remember this about them. They were not poor men. They were not wild-eyed pirates. These were men of means. They were rich men, most of them. And had enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal living. They were not hungry men, certainly not terrorists, not irresponsible malcontents, not fanatical incendiaries, these men were prosperous men, wealthy landowners. They were substantially secure in their prosperity, and they had everything to lose. But they considered liberty. And this is as much as I will say about it. They learned that liberty is so much more important than security that they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And they fulfilled their pledge. 
they paid the price. And freedom was born. Paul Harvey. Good day. Now, let us break this down. I'm going to go through this the way Paul Harvey said it. And I'm going to give you a history lesson. The United States of America was born in 1776, but it was conceived 169 years before that. All others of the world's revolutions before and since were initiated by men who had nothing to lose. Our founders had everything to lose and nothing to gain. Except one thing. Lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. Now allow me to break down Mr. Harvey's essay down in more historical terms. These were men of means and well-educated. Most of the signers were certainly men of means, notably Sam Adams was so poor that the people he represented took up a collection to send him to Philadelphia in clothing befitting a representative of their town. Many of those well-educated men were not educated by colleges, but educated on their own. Some acquired as many as three honorary degrees from leading universities without ever having gone beyond the most basic of formal education. 24 were lawyers and judges, or jurists they were called back in the day. 11 were merchants. 9 were farmers and owners of large plantations. This part is a common tie between all of the bogus essays. They all try to define the signers so simply, and it just cannot be done. Dumas Malone, in his book, Making of the Declaration of Independence, on pages 95 and 96, wrote, quote, They cannot be classified with precision on grounds of occupation, for this was not an age of specialization and occupations constantly overlapped, unquote. Truer words were never spoken. Some, like Samuel Adams, were singularly successful at being congressmen while not doing too well on their own chosen occupation. Many, like Nelson, were born into such wealth and standing that their real calling was public life. And they hired folks to keep the books at home while they dabbled in whatever struck their fancy. Many of these men had varied interests and were proficient at many different trades. Despite that, I felt compelled to make some attempt myself. Even though I have 13 men defined by only one occupation and two as gentlemen, the remaining 41 had a variety of occupations, swelled the list to 141 entries long. The single occupation men were lawyers, six merchants, and two were public servants that will likely go to either the agriculturalist or gentleman categories. The list is sure to get longer as I read more about each signer, but since I've finally gotten at least one entry for all of them, I thought I would illustrate why the simple claim of 24 lawyers, 11 merchants, and 9 farmers is both misleading and a clue to the source of all these inaccurate essays. The longest category in my list is public service. For this category, I only included those who held a 
public office prior to 1770. Many got involved in 1765 during the Stamp Act years. Others were second or third generation politicians. Of the 44 who were 30 years old by 1770, I have 31 in my public service category so far. First, the lawyers. Some of the essays that I've, I've read say 24 or 25 lawyers. Others say 24 lawyers and jurists. There's a difference between an 18th century lawyer and an 18th century jurist. There was no need to be a lawyer to be a jurist. As several of the signers prove, one even sat on the Supreme Court with legal training. My numbers are so far. 22 lawyers, 11 judges and justices. 28 were either lawyers or judges or justices before they signed the declaration. Then the merchants. I count 18. Some had retired, but most of the retired merchants still received profits from their businesses. The farmers were the toughest ones of all. The only one who I still might consider a farmer in the 20th century sense of the word, or 21st century, would be John Hart, and he wore several other hats as well. He was a mill owner, a politician, a justice. Many of the signers were born into very wealthy families who owned huge estates which supported them. Others built these huge estates themselves. To call them farmers is akin to calling Bill Gates a software salesman. It's accurate, but it's misleading. I can't find a term that applies broadly enough to cover the southern planters like Braxton or Carroll that isn't a man who plants cotton or rice, but he's a businessman who runs a business. And the northern aristocrats like Morris and Floyd, who essentially did the same thing and are likely counted as farmers, are in those essays. Rather than resort to farmer, I've used agriculturalists. I didn't count those who were interested in farming as a hobby, but only those who derived a substantial income from their properties like cattle, fruit, produce, lumber, renters, etc. Of them, I counted 16. So this is my tally. 32 public service prior to 1770. 22 lawyers. 11 judges and justices. 18 merchants. 16 planters, farmers, agriculturalists, six academics, five authors, four surveyors, three doctors, three ministers, two gentlemen, and a partridge in a pear tree. Just kidding. There were also a brewer, a cooper, a couple inventors, a musician, a poet, a printer, a publicist, a couple scientists, a seaman, a shoemaker, and a land speculator. Fifty-six men placed their names beneath that pledge. Fifty-six men knew when they signed that they were risking everything. They knew if they won this fight, the best they could expect would be years of hardship in a struggling nation if they lost they'd face a hangman's rope. Well, Carter Braxton of Missouri, excuse me, Carter Braxton of Virginia, a wealthy planter and trader, saw his ships swept from the seas. To pay his debts, he lost his home and all his properties and died in rags. He may have died poor. I haven't located a good biography of him yet, or nor have I read his will. He died at his spacious estate called Cherokee. So I suspect died in rags might be misleading. He did lose his ships, which were flying the British flag when the revolution began. They weren't necessarily swept from the seas, but more likely 
retained by his former business partner, the British government. He did suffer losses in property due to the revolution. He recouped those losses, though, after the revolution. And his next big setback was businesses gone sour around the end of the 1700s. Though a great patriot and statesman, his business practices have met with considerable criticism. Thomas McKeon of Delaware was so harassed by the enemy that he was forced to move his family five times in five months. He served in Congress with his family in poverty and in hiding. Well, McKeon was representing Delaware, that he was born in Pennsylvania and he lived in Philadelphia. He held dual citizenship in the two colonies and is the only representative to serve in Congress throughout the entire war. He held the positions of President of the State of Delaware for three years and President of Congress for one, and Chief Justice of Pennsylvania for several years, along with other positions. He put his name on a list of volunteers to lead militia groups. After the July votes, he headed off to Perth Amboy to take charge of a battalion of Pennsylvania Associators. He arrived back in Philadelphia after the August 2nd signing, so his name was added much later, and probably shortly after the January 1777. Vandals looted the properties of Elroy and Clymer and Hall and Gwinnett and Walton and Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton. This is a phrase most often repeated in the copycat essays. It is true that some of the properties of those men were vandalized, and one of Ellery's homes was burned. Yet they owned many properties. The same can be said for many more of the signers and nearly all of the wealthy people in the war-torn areas of our country in those years, both armies the British and the Americans, forged for food. If a property owner had food or lumber or livestock or wagons or horses, any army passing through was likely to appropriate them for their use. The most spacious homes were commandeered for billeting soldiers and officers on both sides. Loyalists would vandalize the homes of their patriot neighbors. Notable among the homes which were in occupied territory, but were left with little or no damage, are homes belonging to Floyd, Lewis Morris, Hopkinson, Stockton, Middleton, Witherspoon, Hart, Nelson, Jefferson, Harrison, Hayward, both Addison, Adams, Hancock, Rush, Huntington, Wilson, Robert Morris, and the Lee brothers. And Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, he did raise $2 million on his own signature to provision our allies, the French fleet. After the war, he personally paid back the loans, wiped out his entire state. He was never reimbursed by his government. In the final battle of Yorktown, he, Nelson, urged General Washington to fire on his, Nelson's, own home, which was occupied by Cornwallis. Well, his home was destroyed. He died bankrupt, and he was buried in an unmarked grave. Thomas Nelson, Jr. had pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor. The two million dollars, that figure has been repeated often. That might be an accurate translation of $30,000 in 1780 in American pounds to the $1956 of two million. 30,000 pounds is what Nelson tried to have reimbursed by the Virginia government after 1783. The Virginia government did refuse to pay back the loans. 
but his estate was never in any danger of being wiped out. In the Battle of Yorktown, Nelson, he was the governor of Virginia at the time, and the head of the Virginia militia was in command of the American battery, which was destroying the headquarters of Cornwallis in Yorktown. The home, however, was not his, but the home of his uncle and namesake, Thomas, the Secretary Nelson. Soon after that, Nelson was officer of the day and reviewing the French troops in the center of the American lines. It was on this day that legend says he offered five guineas to any French artillerists who could hit his home which is now a prominent feature in Yorktown even today. The legend, where I've seen it repeated by respected authorities, does not mention him seeing Cornwallis near it. And indications are that Cornwallis was holed up in a root cellar on his uncle's estate. His home was damaged, though not beyond repair. It is a national park site and visited by thousands of people every year now. Nelson did pay back all the loans that he could during his lifetime, but all of Virginia's elites were suffering through a post-war recession, not just the signers. Cash was in short supply. He's in Europe before his death. When he died... Though cash poor, he was still among the top ten largest landowners in Virginia. His will allowed for the selling of several properties in Virginia to raise cash to pay off the rest of his debts. After those debts were settled, the remaining several nine or ten plantations were divided among his family, a friend, and one of his slaves. The Hessians seized the home of Francis Hopkinson of New Jersey. The real reason we know that the Hessians occupied Hopkinson's home is that one of those Hessians borrowed a book from Hopkinson's personal library, and he left a message on the flyleaf and had it returned to the family. Francis Lewis had his home and everything destroyed, his wife imprisoned. She died within a few months. Well, Lewis's Long Island home was apparently destroyed. Probably some of his New York City properties were destroyed as well. His business turned over to his son, but still had a source of income, and it appeared to survive the war intact. Mrs. Lewis refused the order given all Long Islanders to leave Long Island. Mr. Lewis was in Philadelphia attending to his duties in Congress at the time. She was imprisoned, and later she was exchanged for two wives of two British officials who the Americans had captured. Her health, probably adversely affected by imprisonment, had been failing for years. And she died about two years after her exchange in Philadelphia. Richard Stockton, who signed that declaration, was captured and mistreated, and his health broken to the extent that he died at 51 years of age. His estate was pillaged. Stockton is alone in that he is the only one of the five signers captured that was not a military prisoner of war. He spent a couple of months in prison. His release is reported in various places as being obtained by an exchange or by his signing an oath to cease rebellious activities. About a year after his release, he began fighting a lip cancer, which took his life two years later. His estate, Morven in Princeton, was pillaged by soldiers from both sides as they passed through. One of George Washington's letters asks American soldiers to return any of Stockton's letters or papers 
that they may have picked up. Thomas Hayward Jr. was captured when Charleston fell. Well, when Charleston fell, all of the officers of the rebel army were paroled. But then shortly afterward, the British had second thoughts and ordered them all to be rounded up again. Hayward and Rutledge and Middleton were all officers. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside while she was dying. Their 13 children fled in all directions for their lives in his fields and gristmill were laid waste. For more than a year, he lived in forests and caves and returned home after the war to find his wife dead and his children gone, his properties gone. He died a few weeks later of exhaustion and a broken heart. Well, his wife died a month before the British invaded New Jersey. The children were grown. There were only two who were still minors. The British occupied that part of New Jersey for less than two months. After returning to his farm, Hart spent two more years serving in Congress before taking a leave due to his kidney stones, which claimed his life in 1789, nearly two and a half years after his harrowing experiences in the woods. Lewis Morris saw his land destroyed and his family scattered. Morris's property was in one of those contested areas of Westchester County, New York. His son, Lewis Morris Jr., wrote to him in 1776, and he wrote, quote, There is a regiment at Morassiani, and your house is being made a barrack of, and there are troops all about us, which makes it impossible to prosecute the business of the farm, and besides, they press your horses. The two coaches' horses were pressed this afternoon, which Colonel Shee has returned, and I believe, unless speedily secured, your breeding mares will come next. Your fat cattle are in the hands of the commissary. Colonel Hand's regiment plunder everybody in Westchester County in indiscriminately. Even yourself has not escaped. Montessori's Island they plundered and committed the most unwarrantable destruction upon it. Fifty dozen of bottles were broken in the cellar and the paper tore from the rooms and every pane of glass broke to pieces. Unquote. Lewis Jr. was writing of the American Army and accurately predicted the fell of Morrisiana, which was Morris's home, to the British in the coming weeks. Morris's family was surely scattered. His children were mostly grown. Three of his sons served in the Continental Army. His wife, as I assume his younger children, went to live with friends when the Continental Army moved onto his property. His wife later joined him in Philadelphia. After the war, they returned to Morrisiana and rebuilt it to the magnificence which it shows visitors today. He died there with his family in 1798. Philip Livingston died within a few months from the hardships of the war. Livingston died in York, Pennsylvania, June 12, 1778, of dropsy. He was attending Congress but took a month's leave for his illness before he died. John Hancock history remembers best due to a quirk of fate rather than anything he stood for. The great sweeping signature attesting to his vanity towers over the others. One of the wealthiest men in New England, he stood outside Boston one terrible night of the war and said, Burn Boston, though it makes John Hancock a beggar, if the public good requires it. Unquote. 
The legend goes that he used those words to affirm his agreement with those in the Committee of Safety who were suggesting burning Boston as a means of saving it from the British in 1775. Of the 56, few were long to survive. Nine died before the revolution was ended in 1783. Another 12 died the next decade. Among them was an octogenarian, two septurians, and none under the age of 44. Nineteen years after signing, half were still alive, and most lived longer than their fathers had. Five were captured by the British and tortured before they died. Only one was captured because he signed. Richard Stockton was arrested by loyalists and turned over to the British to be held in prison. The other four were prisoners of war. There is no record of any signer being tortured or mistreated because they signed the Declaration of Independence. The prisons on both sides were hellholes. Twelve had their homes from Rhode Island to Charleston, sacked, looted, and occupied by the enemy or burned. In this part of the essay, Mr. Harvey missed the Boston home of John Adams that was occupied or the New Hampshire home of Bartlett, which was burned by loyalists and 1774. Two of the signers lost their sons in the army. One had two sons captured. James Witherspoon was killed at the Battle of Germantown. Abraham Clark had two sons that were captured. Historians are in agreement with these two facts. The second son that was killed remains a puzzle that no one seems to be able to answer. And I have two theories. The second son referred to is the son of Henry Lawrence. Lawrence was a president of Congress during the war, though he was not a member of the 1776 Congress, so he did not sign. But his son was killed in a skirmish near Charleston. If the author meant to include Lawrence, however, the number of captured would rise to six, as Lawrence himself was arrested on his way to Europe and spent several months in the Tower of London. Or number two, historians agree that Thomas and Aaron Clark, the sons of the signer Abraham Clark, were POWs. Most account captured twice and escaped both times. What they aren't in agreement on is his young 19-year-old Andrew Clark, who died as a prisoner on the prison ship Jersey. Even the Abraham Clark Society cannot seem to either prove or disprove the connection to the signer. But if we accept that the author meant that the youngest Clark was killed, then he should have said one signer had three sons captured. Or the third possibility, even though I said two. And one I have not been able to follow up on yet is John Morton. I saw this posting on a genealogy mailing list. Martin's History of Chester, 1850, indicates that John Morton, son of John Morton, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, died on board the prison ship Falmouth in New York Harbor during the American Revolution. I haven't seen it mentioned in the bios, or nor have I read it in any other place. The ones that do mention John Morton mention a son named John, born about 1755, so he would have been the right age. The Falmouth was described in Barber's History of New York as a hospital ship, though it made little difference in the mortality on board. That's a promising lead, but has yet to be confirmed. Nine of the 56 died in the war from its hardships or from its merciful bullets. Nine died during the war. One died from a bullet that was fired in a duel with a fellow officer. None died at the hands of the British, and none died due to hardships when 
was lost at sea. It's easy enough to check to see who died before the war was over. Um, you can check those out. I, I don't know what impression you had of the men who met that hot summer in Philadelphia, but I think it's important that we, re we remember this about them. According to Paul Harvey, they were not poor men or wide-eyed pirates. They were men of means, rich means, rich men, most of them who enjoyed much ease and luxury in their personal living, with notable exception of Sam Adams, who was neither rich nor calm. And a few of the more radical members of that Congress, most of the signers, were respectably statesmen of great wealth. All of the facts are documented that all you have to do is a little bit of research. They weren't hungry men, prosperous men. They were wealthy landowners, substantially secure in their prosperity. But they considered liberty. And this is as much as I will say of it. They had learned that liberty is so much more important than security. They had pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. I admire the Congress at large at that time when it was inevitable that the vote would pass doing everything in their power to make a united front. Both the, get, both the delegates who stayed home and the new appointees who were unable to take part in much more than a vote that had already been decided are a tribute to the body of who put the country and their countrymen above their personal egos. And they fulfilled their pledge. They paid the price. And freedom was born. All of the Americans who lived in those times paid the price. And such are the stories and sacrifices of the American Revolution. They gave you and me a free and independent America. The history books never told you a lot of what happened in the Revolutionary War. We didn't just fight the British. We were British subjects at the time, and we fought our own government. And perhaps you can see why our founding fathers had a hatred for standing armies and allowed through the Second Amendment for everyone to be armed. My ancestors fought in wars to preserve our Constitution. My brothers and sisters in arms fought in wars to preserve our preserve our Constitution. I fought in wars and still fight to preserve our Constitution. Many of you and your families and friends have fought in wars to pre preserve our Constitution. We have sacrificed. We are tired, yet we are not finished. What more are you willing to sacrifice to preserve our Constitution and our nation? In the words of General Mark Milley on November 12, 2020, he said, I quote, We can come here, we can see the relics of the stories through the eyes of the voices of the individual soldiers who endured so much for the cause of freedom and their unrelenting devotion to the Constitution of the United States, the moral North Star for all of us in uniform. It is that document that gives purpose to our service, and we in uniform, are willing to die to pass it on to the next generation. In it are the ideas and the values that make up this experiment called the United States of America and the motto of the United States Army for over 200 years since June 14, 1775. The motto has been, this we will defend. And that this refers to the Constitution and to protect the liberty of the American people. You see, we are unique armies among armies. We are unique among militaries. We do not take an oath to a king or a queen, a tyrant or a dictator. We do not take an oath to an individual. No. We do not take an oath to a country, a tribe, or a religion. We take an oath to the Constitution. 
and every soldier, every sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman, each of us will protect and defend that document regardless of personal price. Unquote. I hear these great swelling words of that general. I hear his dedication and commitment to the Constitution. What I do not see are the actions behind his words. The proof? Why are there military guards surrounding the capital of our nation? They are not there to protect the United States Constitution. Open your eyes. For those who have eyes to hear, excuse me, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, look and listen. It is my hope that I have given you food for thought and this history lesson for tonight. This ends the broadcast for me tonight, and thank you for joining me around my campfire. Now, more than ever, is the time to train hard, train smart, to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time. Mm-hmm.